Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, and then Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 29. That can be found on pages 1040 and 1041 in your pew Bibles. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in the true righteousness and holiness. Now, chapter 5, verses 22 through 29. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Good morning. It is good to see each one and welcome each one. If you're a guest, especially, we welcome you. It encourages us to have you here, and and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Some would describe Michael Roach and Christy McNally as a little bit different. You see, they choose to live in Arizona in a yurt, which is a canvas covering a wooden frame. It's only about 22 feet wide. They have a wood-burning stove. They have no running water, no electricity. They practice a form of the Buddhist religion. But perhaps what many would say is the most unusual thing that they've done is that they've made a commitment to each other 10 years ago. Now, he is 20 years older than her. That's somewhat unusual, but not unthinkable. But what most people can't imagine at all was the commitment that they made to each other was not just a vow of maybe marriage as we think about it most oftentimes. It was a vow to never part from each other. Literally. They never part from each other more than 15 feet apart for the last 10 years. And their plan is to do that for life. If one of them decides they need to get up in the middle of the night, they wake the other one up. If they're flying somewhere and their seats are more than 15 feet apart they'll exit the plane and refuse to fly on that particular flight. You see, their idea of joining together is to join together in mind and body and soul, and and their understanding is that they would never part from each other, which also, to add to the confusion and kind of strangeness of all this, they also are celibate, at least they claim. And so it is when we think about, isn't it amazing what, men and women will sometimes try as they conjure up their own formulas of how to live an intimate life together? Think of the millions of people that have set their own limits, 
Maybe, maybe you are a husband or wife and, and maybe you've agreed that you can be more than 15 feet apart. But really this morning, who has set your limits? When you say, I am a Christian husband or I am a Christian wife, it's based on what? Is it based on your limits and your definition? It can't be if you're a Christian husband or a Christian wife. If you're a Christian husband or a Christian wife, it has to be based upon God. And so as we've been studying through the book of Ephesians, we continue that study this morning and we come to the passage where Paul writes about what he has, is encouraging husbands and wives to do, not based upon Paul's understanding per se and not based upon what he thinks might work. But if you'll notice in this passage, he continually bases it upon what God has taught. Just as Christ loved the church and, and as unto the Lord, all of these passages remind us that it's all about God. It's interesting when you study through a book verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph, and even though in this series uh, and of sermons we've not necessarily gone verse by verse, but something becomes very clear as you study through the book of Ephesians. And that is in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, in verse 17, we have there that transitional point for the rest of this book. You see, this was where he begins talking about to make, if you will, a drastic difference in the world and those that follow God. And his plea was, we're no longer going to walk like the Gentiles any longer. And then for several paragraphs, he talks about that new walk, that walk in love, imitating God, that walk in light, that walk in wisdom. And now that new walk brings us to how we walk now as husbands and wives. But I hope you have your Bibles open and they're on page 1040 in your pew Bible. Notice again what we have to learn. We have to learn Christ. Now that's very important when we think, well, why is it that we need to learn Christ? Notice as you glance over 21 and 22 again. In, in 22, there's some things that we have to put off when we've learned Christ. It's former conduct. It's our old ways of behavior. That old man that grows corrupt, and the reason is we follow deceitful lust. But there's a new way to live. Notice verse 20, if we learn Christ... If we learn Christ, there's a new way to live. And he talks about that in 23. It begins with the renewing of the mind. In 24, we put on this new man, but he's created according to God. I emphasize again to you, we don't create this new life. We don't set the boundaries. God sets the boundaries in this. And so we say, God, what, what are your boundaries? What are your limitations? What, are, what is the guidance that you would offer to husband and wife? Notice he says it's going to be at the end of 24 according to true righteousness and holiness. On this next slide, we see something that you probably have already noticed in this passage. And, and several weeks ago when we looked at it, we glanced at something similar to this. I just want you to get in your mind how plain and simple that it is that the Lord says we can even live... We can either live by our own conduct, the old way, before we became Christians. But no, when we do that, we're doing something that is growing corrupt. You know, when, when a piece of metal is corroding, when it is growing corrupt, it is growing weaker, eventually that piece of metal rusts and becomes so thin that you can just break it. It no longer has, has an integrity to it. It no longer is strong. And he's saying about our lives spiritually, He's saying if we decide to be that old person, 
We're a part of a life that is continually getting weaker. It is continually corroding. You know, last night I was grilling a little bit on the grill and, and instead of having a salt shaker, I, I had some salt that I was pouring in my hand and, and kind of just putting it over the steaks there. And, and I noticed as I was doing that, I was getting salt all over the grill. And I thought to myself, you know, if I keep doing this for a period of time, it won't be long before things on this grill will begin to rust. What was I saying to myself? I was saying, if I continue the same behavior in the future as I'm doing right now, things are going to be corrupt with the integrity of that grill. Friends, the Lord is saying to us through Paul, He's saying, listen, you've said you're going to live a new life as a Christian. But just know, if you don't start walking a different walk, if you continually walk in that way of the world, you're on a path that is going to corrode and corrupt your relationship, not only with God, but with others. And it's through deceitful lust. In other words, Satan will have us to believe this is a good way to live. Look at all the fulfillment that you can have. It's lies. It is full of lies. And so we have to see through that deceit. But notice the new conduct. The new conduct is the renewing of the mind. What is renewed? We concentrate on Christ. Verse 20, if so, you've not learned Christ. When we learn Christ, our mind is changed. Now we no longer think on a carnal nature. Now we think on a spiritual plane. And so now we're created by God. We're not setting our standards. We're not setting the limits. We're allowing God to do that. And so what's the result? A righteous standard. And notice this, holy living. As First Peter would say, as God is holy, He's calling us to be holy. We will never do that by our carnal nature. We'll only do that spiritual. Now, why is it so important that we understand that? As we go back, let's, let's go to the next slide. And notice as we go back to uh, the latter part of the text in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Notice again verse 22. And as we notice this, so oftentimes we concentrate... Obviously, I mean, it's, it's obvious why we do it. We concentrate so much on what he's saying to husbands and what he's saying to wives that we kind of just skim right over why he's saying it to them. I, I want us to slow down for just a minute this morning and notice why he's saying it. If, as you look at verse 22, notice, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is head of the wife as also... Christ is head of the church, and He's the Savior of the body. What's the Lord calling us to do here? He's calling the husband and the wife to find their roles that, notice, they're not the roles that they find by carnal nature. If you have learned Christ, you learn a spiritual plane. Well, what is it that we do in our relationships if we've learned Christ? The wife finds the role of submission. The husband finds the role of headship. But why? Notice, it's as unto the Lord. It's learning to follow as Christ loved or as Christ was head of the church. You see, this is a part of holiness that is beautiful. It's part of holiness that when we think of holy relationships are whole. It's interesting if you talk to individuals that are in a marriage and you, and you said, hey, do you want a whole relationship? Do you want to feel whole in your relationship? I would think that most would say yes. But I wonder how many realize that the only way to find that wholeness in a relationship is first to be holy. 
I'd like for you to think about a few things as we go to this next slide. And then later on this year, probably, we'll come back and, and do a lesson primarily on, on just this teaching here because uh, we could spend a lot of time on this one thing. But, but just to bullet a few things here. As we think about holiness, I'd like for us to think about the fact, number one, that only the holy imparts the knowledge of the holy. There's no way you and I, by our carnal nature, would ever know holiness, but the Holy Spirit has revealed the mind of Christ to us so that now we know holiness. But if we try to define our own holiness, it cannot be done. Holiness can only come from God. So we have to stop and say, God, what is it that you want? That's why we look at the roles that God wants us to fulfill in the relationship. But second, realize that it is the way God is. As Peter says, God is holy. So when we're thinking about a carnal nature, that's not God. The spiritual nature, holiness, that is God. And so what we're literally trying to do is to follow the nature of God. But this third thing, notice this is huge. Holiness preserves creatures. God created us and then offers a way to protect us. And that way to protect us is holiness. If you will, back up in your Bibles to Leviticus, the 19th chapter. We, we don't have a slide on this, but if you have your Bible, I'd like to just point out something that to me is, is real interesting. W.A. Tozier did uh, a lot of writing on holiness. And um, i tell you what, let's back up. And in just a moment, we'll, we'll read that quote. But notice this in Leviticus, the, the 19th chapter as we think about how holiness preserves us. When we look in the gathering in the 19th chapter in verse 1, Moses was speaking for the Lord, and he says in verse 2, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, throughout the rest of this chapter, he's going to pull out just that phrase, that I'm the Lord, your God. But notice what he's doing here with the Lord, your God. He's putting that between the command, you be holy because I'm the Lord your God and I'm holy. So this is what I am. And because I'm the Lord that loves you and cares for you, I want you to be holy because that's going to preserve you. You've probably heard me say it before, but think about this beautiful, simple explanation. God never asks anything of us because he's God. I can make you do it. God asks everything of us because He loves us and He wants what is right and best for us. So when we read through Leviticus, the 19th chapter, why did God ask what probably in their day and time they might have thought, well, some of this is really strange. But you see, it was to preserve them as people and as a nation. Uh, let's glance at a few things. Notice verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols nor make for yourselves molding gods. I am the Lord your God. See how he continually says, I'm the Lord your God. Be holy. I'm the Lord your God. I'm holy. What was he saying? He's saying, I want to preserve your families. If I can have children that honor and respect their mother and fathers, I'm going to preserve families. And that's good for you. Be holy as I'm holy. Hey, I'm the Lord your God. Also, I want to preserve your soul. Don't turn to idols. I'm the Lord your God. Be holy. I'm the Lord your God. I'm holy. Let's look at one more. We could do this for many passages here, but let's look at beginning verse 5. And if you offer a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will, and it shall be eaten the same day you offer it. On the next day, if any remains into the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it's eaten at all on the third day, it's an abomination. It shall not be accepted. Why do you think God 
would not allow them, when they made an offering, let's say that a part of the offering was some kind of meat and, and the offering was burned, uh, a fire underneath it. In other words, it was roasted. And so after they offered a part of the offering, they were able to take it off and they could eat of some of the offering the first day. They could even eat of part of the offering the second day, but absolutely not on the third day. You see, they understood clearly. They had that in ninth grade health. They probably had it in Biology 101 when they were in the university out in the middle of the wilderness, didn't they? Do you see what's happening here? These people would have had no idea about germs and about the diseases they're associated with eating meat. But God, meat that had been cooked for several days, but God was protecting them. God was preserving them, saying, listen, you can eat the meat on the first day, and you can eat it on the second day, but absolutely it's an abomination to eat it the third day. Why? Because I am the Lord. You be holy as I am holy. Friends, it is a powerful thought to think about the all-knowing God offering all kinds of guidelines that preserves our health, that preserves our relationships. And if we choose to follow those, God counts that as holiness. And if we rebel against it, of course, it is unholiness that leads to destruction. Here's how W.A. Tozer would say it. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. The formation of the language itself suggests this. The English word holy, derived from the Anglo-Saxon helig, how, meaning well or whole. God's wrath is His utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. Now, in the day that he wrote this, you can imagine how prevalent polio was, oftentimes taking the life, if not, leaving a child crippled. And can, can you imagine the mother finding the news that her little one has contracted polio? And so now they may not live, or if they do, they'll suffer probably from this, the consequences, the crippling of this disease for the rest of their life. And you can imagine how a mother would hate to hear that her child is suffering in that way. And when we look at the plea of holiness, God is making a plea. And He is giving us all of this protection against things that would hurt us. Can you imagine how it hurts God when we tread right into the way of sin, which actually is, is unholiness, which actually is the pathway of death? Tozer also says, describing his culture in his day, which would have been many years ago, but it's very similar, I guess, to in our day also. He says, we've learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. Friend, that is the danger. And I want to ask you this morning, have you come to accept unholiness? When we look at the design of marriage of husbands and wives, and we look at the carnal nature of it, and we look at the spiritual nature of it, which one are you the most comfortable with? Which one are you looking at and saying, oh, now this is the way we like to do it in our family? Well, let's go back, if you will, now to Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 22. 
And I'd like for us to read that verse again in Ephesians 5 and 22 and 23. Notice what he says here as he defines the way God has laid out relationships. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You see, it's in holiness. It's it's all about your relationship with the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. What is he laying out here? He's laying out in the spiritual realm, those that choose to learn Christ, those that choose to follow holiness, those that choose to preserve their marriages, or better yet, to allow God to preserve their marriages. He's saying they're going to have an understanding that there's different roles. Keep in mind, has nothing to do with worth, with essence, has nothing to do with intelligence or ability. He's not saying that one is greater than the other. He's saying, though, we have different roles. The wife is to be submissive to the husband. The husband is to be submissive to Jesus. You see, that's the interesting thing about submission. It's mutual. Both in marriage are to submit. The wife submits to the husband and to Christ. The husband submits to Christ. And then it's beneficial for both parties because they're receiving the blessings of God. Also, it's spiritual. In other words, they're not doing this because they've come up with this design themselves. They're doing this because they trust that God's way is best and they want to live a holy life that will preserve their marriage. And so we say, well, what are these roles? You know, one of the most common things that individuals will say, and probably far too often even among those that claim Christianity, is they'll say, well, now, in our home, we, we really... Uh, as a husband, is not really the head of the home. We've decided to lead in equality. That's, that's one of the most common descriptions I hear of homes today. Now, do you realize that didn't come from God? That is the carnal nature. That's the carnal nature that says we don't trust God's way. Now, it may be because the husband's saying, look, I'm too lazy. It's hard work to be the head of a home the way Christ wants it because, number one, you never get your way. Because you love your home and you lead your home as Christ loved the church. He gave himself for it. He always did what was right and best. So the husband never gets his way. He's always submitting to Jesus and he's leading the family toward Jesus. And so it's hard work to do that. You're on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it's a lot easier just to step back and hope that mom, the kids, somebody else will start picking up the spiritual leadership in the house and and any of the leadership in the house. Then on the other hand, there, there may be a wife that says, hey, I'm strong-willed. I, I just want to lead the way. I, if he's going to step back, I just want to charge ahead. You see, all of those fall under carnal nature, spiritual nature. Spiritual nature is designed by God. But now let's think again about this equality. Well, we just kind of share it. He kind of takes the lead in some things, and she kind of takes the lead in some things, and they just kind of get together and share some things. Where else would you like to do that? Just mull that one over. Is there any other relationship you'd like to do that? Where you say, hey, roles are no longer important. We're going to wipe away all roles and everybody's going to be equal. How about you school teachers? You want to begin school this fall doing that? I just imagine uh, Mr. Mel Brown 
New facility is going to be built here in my Juliet High School, about 16, 1,700 kids. I can imagine getting up and announcing, say, this is my last announcement as the principal of the Mount Juliet High School because in just a moment, when I drop the gavel, there's going to be no more roles in this school. There's not going to be any more principals, no more assistant principals, no more guidance counselors. There's not going to be any more teachers. And guess what? There's not going to be any more students. We're all equal. And so uh, when the gavel falls, I don't know what to tell you to do, but everybody can just get together and you can decide what you want to do. Going to work tomorrow morning and say, hey, there's no more roles. Counting department, you're no longer the accounting department. Maintenance department, you're no longer the maintenance department. Production, R&D, it doesn't matter what it is. We don't have any more roles. We don't have a CEO. We don't have any kind of structure. Everybody's equal. There's not anywhere in our society we do that. Not anywhere. But isn't it interesting how many say that's what they want to do in their homes? We learn a valuable lesson when we realize, number one, God's way is best, and number two, when everybody respects their roles, things work in a holistic way. What a beautiful thought. And that holistic way needs to be in every way. Look at the very next verse as we look to verse 24. He says, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. How how much are, are the wives to submit to husbands in? Everything. How much are the husbands to submit to Jesus Christ? And everything. So what do we have here? We have a unified relationship. They're not saying, hey, we're together in most things. A Christian husband and a Christian wife by God's plan are saying, we're together in everything. I'm following Jesus Christ in everything. And the wife's saying, I'm following my husband and and Jesus Christ in everything. Unity. Friends, we know the power of unity. Ecclesiastes tells us that three cords braided together cannot easily be broken. Why? Because three are much stronger than one. Who are the three in God's design? The Lord, a husband, and a wife with their relationship woven together so much that they are wholly unified. That's what Jesus prayed about in John the 17th chapter for all believers that we would be one just as He and the Father is one. Now, if that's the prayer for all believers, it ought to definitely be the prayer for Christian homes where there's a husband and a wife following the Lord, complete unity. Mark the third chapter, Jesus taught that a house that's divided against itself cannot stand. The strength of a home is unity. But notice as we look to this next two verses, look in verse 25 and 26 as he says, Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Notice how each one of these is about how Christ is done. That's why it's all about holiness. It's not about what we would do on our own. Now, what did he do for the church? He gave himself for it, and he wanted to sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of the water. If we read on to 27, he wanted to present her a glorious church without spot and wrinkle. And at the end of 27, the interesting thing is that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ's goal was to present the church holy. He wants a holy relationship for the church and with the church. And so we see this kind of love here. What kind of love is it that God teaches us to have in this relationship? He wants husbands to have a love that is caring. 
cares so much for his wife that he would die for, that he would give his life for her, and that he would do everything that is best for her spiritually. Everything that would lead her so that on the day of judgment, she could hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, a part of this care, if you look down deeper in 28 and 29, a part of this care is to love the wife as he would love his own body. And then he even points out in 29 that that's one who would nourish and cherish his wife. And when we think about our own body, it's easy for us to think care to, to think about taking care of our body. We provide the nutrients that are needed for our body. We have a natural mechanism that tells us we're hungry. We have a natural mechanism that tells us we're thirsty. And so just as we would naturally care for our own body, the Lord is saying in a spiritual, in a holy sense, naturally care for your marriage. Naturally have a love that cares. And the word cherish is the idea to treasure and to protect. To realize that what you have is such great worth that you would protect it. But notice, again, each one of these are just as Christ would the church. In other words, as we look at this closing slide here, notice that this is the way the Lord would describe the relationships. If we want in marriage to be whole, we have to realize that it is to be holy. Because when we follow God's pattern, we realize each person needs to fulfill their roles. A lot of relationships aren't whole because they have gaps in their roles because some aren't being fulfilled. Then we want unity because a unified relationship is the strongest kind of relationship. But then we want love because what we all crave in relationships is we crave for someone to truly care about us. Now, let's close with with that thought. If we're going to make marriages better, we have to learn Christ. When we learn Christ, we enrich not only our own life, but the lives that we share relationships with. Christ loved us so much, He proved it in the way that He cared for us. This morning, have you responded to the love and to the care that Christ has offered to you? He's died for you. He wants to adopt you, uh, the Father, through Jesus into His family. If you're a believer that's willing to repent of sins and confess before men and and be baptized into Christ, won't you do that this morning? And as you arise from that water as a child of God, that is to direct our steps in every aspect of life. When we go to our homes, we live a holy life. It's a different standard from the carnal. And so we follow that pattern. When we go into the community and we go into our workplace, we live not a carnal, but a spiritual manner. Holy, because He's holy. If somewhere along the way since you were baptized, and since you made a commitment that you'd follow the Lord, you've lost the way of that holiness, won't you repent of that and confess it and let's pray forgiveness this morning. If we can help you in either way, please come as we stand and as we sing.